beginning our new series today called I Believe in You, and, and I want to ask you a question. How did Christianity and how did the church get started? Now, our church started uh, on June 22nd, 2002 in what is now the Verizon building. I think we had 24 people. I think the second week we had 12 people, and then the next week we had six. I don't know. I don't know if we actually went to six. We didn't ever get that small, but we knew we were going the wrong direction, and if God didn't show up, then we were going to be in trouble. So that was 17 years ago that we started the church, and God eventually brought us here. But I want to ask you, when did the whole thing get started? The whole idea of Christianity and the church gets started. Some people say it's Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came uh, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and started to live in the lives of believers. Some people say that it's when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think it actually goes further back than that. I think it goes back to the beginning of time before humans were ever created. And we read about it in the book of Genesis. In the very first chapter, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were consulting together about this, this thing called earth and humanity and all of these things. And here's what they said in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. He wasn't talking to angels. He was talking to God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. We call it the Trinity. There is one God. There's three persons in that God. And he was speaking to himself, uh, God, the son, God, the father, God, the Holy spirit. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. I believe this is the moment that God's plan of redeeming um, humans from sin began right here. Now, thousands of years later, we did this whole series called God is With Us. We, uh, we, we, Jesus had the name called Emmanuel. Go ahead and put that up there. Which means what? God is with us. So we, we read in the scripture at just the right time, Jesus Christ became Emmanuel, God with us. And then 30 years after Jesus was born um, at just the right time, we read these words in Mark chapter one, starting in verse nine. At that time, at just the right time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, a few weeks ago, we read this story and we, we learned that almost anybody who was anybody was leaving from Jerusalem and all the whole countryside to go see who this John the Baptist guy was was out by the Jordan River. And so it, the Bible says multitudes and multitudes of Jews were coming out to see who John the Baptist was at the Jordan. Jesus was one of them. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Now, I would love to have been there with the thousands and thousands of people and heard the voice from heaven that said, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. I don't know if your dad ever said anything like that to you, but it's a pretty cool thing. And I I don't know if your dad ever said anything that he was pleased with you in front of a group of people. That's even better, right? You may feel a little bit embarrassed, but when dad says you did good son and a bunch of people are around, that's awesome, right? That's what happened. Now, immediately after God affirms Jesus publicly, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what I want to know is how many times during that 40 days of temptation, how many times during his three years of ministry, how many times during his torture and his crucifixion did Jesus remember the words of his father booming from heaven? You're my son whom I love. I'm so pleased with you. Basically, God's saying, I believe in you, Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something else. God did not affirm Jesus when he made straight A's in his classes. He did not affirm Jesus when he scored the winning touchdown over the Seattle Seahawks to win only our second playoff game in the past 23 years for the Dallas Cowboys. I didn't even watch the game. I got up this morning and went, oh, huh. and then I watched the highlights this morning because I just assumed. Anyway, wrong of me to assume we won, but, but that's not when God affirmed Jesus. He affirmed Jesus when he was baptized. So here's the point for you. God affirmed Jesus when he did something spiritual. 
you know why God was pleased with his son? Because Jesus was fulfilling God's purpose for Jesus' life on this earth. It's like God was saying, I'm pleased with you because you are doing exactly what I knew you could do and I knew you would do. It's like Jesus, it's like God saying, I believed in you and you've repaid my belief by submitting to my will, by obeying to my will, and that brings me great pleasure. And let me tell you something. Anytime you submit to the will of God and you do what God wants you to do, it brings your heavenly father great pleasure. He will affirm you when you do something spiritual. Now, there's those here today, those of you here today, that you're going to be affirmed today, but I just got to tell you, there's some things God added to this. I go over my sermons 10 times before I, before I preach them to you, and God just keeps adding things, so God added some things today. Some of you, God's going to affirm today because you're doing exactly why, what God created you to do. Some of you, God's going to challenge because you're not doing much. And then some of you, God's going to rebuke you today because you're not doing anything for his kingdom. And he's not pleased when people don't do anything for his kingdom. He didn't die so that you could sit on your butt. So, sorry. I remember in, in all of my other churches, I couldn't say but, and I can say it here, so that's awesome. Um, here it is. When God affirms you, the enemy will attack. Now, what if God doesn't affirm you? I said, some of he's going to challenge you. Some of you, he's going to um, rebuke you. So I should have said, I should have changed the listening guide to say, when God speaks to you, however he speaks to you, the enemy will attack you. And that's what happened right after God's statement. In verse 11 of Mark chapter 1, God says, you're my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. Verse 12, look what it says. At once, the Spirit, that's a capital S. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, at once sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Whenever God speaks to you, mark it down on your calendar. The enemy of God is going to try to talk you out of whatever it is God wants you to do, whether it's a, an affirmation, whether he rebukes you, whether he challenges you. He does not want you to do what God wants you to do. That's the last thing the enemy wants you to do. Why? Because if he can get you off the narrow path that leads to life, he can not only get you over here on the path to destruction, he might also get some other people to follow you to the path of destruction. He might also um, make you miss the people that God had planned for you to lead into the kingdom of God. So he tries desperately to keep you from doing at the first what God wants you to do. That's what happened with Jesus. As soon as God affirmed him, the beginning of his ministry is led out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now there's only two reasons to be in the wilderness. Only two. Number one is your sinful choices. Your choices led you there. If you're far from God right now, it may very well be that you chose to walk away from God. You chose to walk away from everybody's advice. Everyone who said, don't do it, don't do it, you chose to walk away, and that's why you're far from God. Or the second possibility is God's Spirit led you there. Why would God's Spirit lead us there? He led Jesus there. Why? So that Jesus could be tempted, so he could be tested. God didn't tempt him. God allowed him to be tempted. God allowed him to be tested so that Jesus could say in the book of Hebrews, or, or so they, they, the writer could say, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he's without sin, so that he could be the righteous um, high priest for us. Now, immediately after the temptation, Jesus passes the test. He goes out and he invites 12 of the most overlooked, uneducated, unlikely people, and he said to them, if you'll leave what you think is important, I'll show you what is really important, and you can make a difference in history. We'll, we'll do life together. I'll teach you everything you need to know, and you can totally change the world. Now, no offense. I don't know what you do for a living, but, but I don't think whatever you do for a living is going to change the world. The oil field's going to change the world. Now, I know prices, gas prices, woohoo! I love low gas prices. I'm very acquainted with fossil fuels. But if fossil fuels cease to exist, would that impact heaven? 
If, if the Cowboys were to have lost last night, which I assume they would, would that impact heaven? No. Right? What I'm saying is your job should be a means to an end. It is not the end. And some of you are worshiping your job. You're worshiping your money that you're making from the job, and you are not doing so. God's going to rebuke you today because you're not doing what he created you to do. For three years, Jesus walked and lived with these men, ordinary men, uneducated men, and they asked him questions. He responded. He invested in them. He poured his life into them. And then at the end of his, uh, this three-year period, Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. He appears to them for 40 days. Um, and, and at one point, it says 500 people saw Jesus alive at the same time. And then right before he leaves, one of the most emotional points in history, Jesus is talking to the 11, because remember, Judas betrayed him. So that he's talking to his 11 followers on, uh, in Galilee, and, and he says this to them. I believe in you. This is what these verses, I want you to read them with me, but he's saying in essence, I believe in you. Here's what he says. Therefore, you always need to know why it's therefore, why it's therefore. So in in this instance, Jesus had just said all authority. See, he did everything he was supposed to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, therefore, talking to his disciples in whom he believed. And he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given given you. And be sure of this. We read this verse just a couple of weeks ago. I am with you always. Jesus said, I am Emmanuel always, even to the end of the age. Doesn't that sound like Jesus is saying, I believe in you guys. You can do it. I've given you everything you need. And here we are 2,000 years later. We're worshiping on a Sunday morning. Thousands and thousands, millions of Christians around the world are worshiping today in 2019 because the father believed in his son and the son believed in his followers and those followers raised up some other followers and believed in them until we have a church today because somebody believed in me somebody believed in you that's the way god set it up see this this series is all about the power of influence you can call it um, mentoring and call it investing in others or leading by example um, paul said this in, to the church in corinth 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1. follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There's an implication there. If I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. The New American Standard says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the implication is, if I'm not imitating Christ, don't you dare imitate me. But Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, Christ is my model. I'm following him. I want you to join me as I follow him. I've learned some things about him, and if you're willing, I'll teach you those things. And together, we can look more and more like Jesus. It's like having a spiritual workout buddy. This is how Jesus set up the church to succeed. It is the model. The older men are supposed to, according to Scripture, teach and lead the younger men. The older women are supposed to teach and lead the younger women. It's how the church survives and thrives and continues. Now, if you're under 30 years age, 30 or under, please stand up. Go ahead. Quick, quick, quick. 30 or under, please stand up. Most of them in once. Okay, there we go. There we go. Now, maybe, no, 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 come on. We got to get the visual. So roughly half of the group here today and in the weeks that follow, I'm going to talk about what we need to do as a church to invest in you for the next generation. Not just where you're going to go and serve, what you're going to do um, with your life, what vocation. Your vocation is a means to serving God's kingdom. But we're going to pour value into you and, and, and we want you to be here each week, but the rest of you need to come too. Not just because I'm talking to them, because I'm going to be talking to you as well. Okay, be seated. 
Now, we're going to talk about these, these, this next generation of leaders. We're going to talk about how every person needs a Paul and every person needs a Timothy. Say, I need a Paul. Say, I need a Timothy. A Paul is someone who's older than you that you can follow after them. A Timothy is someone who is behind you, maybe spiritually younger than you, that you could lead. Every Christian needs a Paul. Every Christian needs a Timothy. In week four, we're going to look at the impact we can have at New Life and around the world if we get this right. Now, I've, this was another thing that God added to me yesterday, added to the sermon yesterday. So this isn't on the screen. I'm going to read two verses to you, and, and you better pay attention because God's going to hold you accountable for this. First verse is Mark 9, 42. Jesus himself is speaking, and he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones. Now, no offense, but if you're, if you're 30 or under, you're a little one. I, I don't mean, I just mean if you're younger than me, I call you a kid, right? If you're 50, I call you a kid. And I'm like, oh, wow, they're 50, and they're still a kid. And then I was playing golf the other day, and some 80-year-old men were calling me a kid, and I'm going, yeah, I need to hang out with more 80-year-old men. So, so what we're going to say is, if anyone causes one of these younger ones, we're not going to call them little ones, we're going to call them younger ones. If anyone causes them to stumble, those who believe in me to stumble, listen to the words of Jesus. It'd be better for them, the person who causes the little ones or the young ones to stumble, if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Don't you dare cause by your actions, by your words, by your attitudes, by the places you go, by the things you post online. Don't you dare cause one of these younger ones to stumble. It is better, your Lord and Savior said, if you should be drowned in the sea, than you cause a little one to stumble. You better take that seriously. Second one is from the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I'm not trying to talk you out of serving because I'm about to try to talk you into serving. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there is nothing like the local church when the local church is working right, and there is no cause that you can give your life to that has the word of God backing it saying, what you do today can impact, can have this ripple effect into eternity. That's why I take this so seriously. It's why there's no place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning than here with you. And when I'm away, I'm watching online, I'm checking things out, partially because I gotta monitor what Casey says, but partially because I love this church, you know. Um, I'm just telling you, if you do something too with one of the younger ones that causes them to stumble, your heavenly father will hold you accountable. I had mentors who poured value into me. My brothers were, were two of them. And I wouldn't be a pastor today if it wasn't for them. My oldest brother had his first pastorate when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And I told you a couple of weeks ago about the Sunday school teacher who said to my brother in the sanctuary, I do not care what the Bible says. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're always gonna do it. And I remember as an eighth grader going, get away from her, she's going to die. <laughs> I remember that. It impacted my life. Um, that brother taught me how to study Scripture. He taught me how to memorize Scripture. I remember we, I used to work with him mowing lawns, and we would memorize verse. We, sometimes we'd memorize a whole psalm or a whole proverb driving in between places where we were working. He invested in me. My other brother, Terry, they're 14 and 12 years older than me. He was a pastor for over tw uh, 20 years, and the last pastor was in Colleyville. And, and um, I, I remember visiting his church, and I, I, 
when I graduated from Baylor, I actually moved a mile from Terry's house and started serving in his church, and, and he, he had a huge impact in my life. When I was a senior in high school, I was at youth camp, and I really do not believe I would have heard God's call had I not gone to youth camp. Now, back then, we didn't have cell phones. We had rotary dial, but they were very important in my life. And so I would, I would sneak the phone into my bedroom, and I would call. I, I would talk four to six hours a night on the phone. I am not making that up. My sister one time had an emergency, and she's calling my parents, and she chewed me out the next day. How dare you? I'm like, my social life is way more important than somebody outside your house knocking on your door in the middle of the night. You need to understand that. And, and I said, besides, 911, you know, we were 20 minutes away. Anyway, when I went off to youth camp is when God got a hold of me because I didn't have distractions. And it was at that youth camp that God says, I want you to be in ministry. So I go back home and I tell my church, First Baptist Borger, I said, I'm going to serve in ministry. And I didn't know what else I could do. I, could, I, was, I was in choir, and, and so I could sing. So I said, I'll be a music minister. And so I went off to Baylor in my first semester at Baylor. I enrolled in the engineering school because that's where anyone called of God to be a minister should go to school, is in the engineering school, right? After one semester, I'm like, this is stupid. If God's called me to do this, I need to prepare. It was also hard, um, but that's beside the point. Um, and I, and I started, I found out that Baylor had a school, not only a school of music, but they had a church music degree. And I said, that's it. And so I enrolled and, and, and so I had to do old Testament, new Testament survey. I had to, you know, study different things, theology. I studied church history. I studied church music and I thoroughly loved it. And, and I got in excellent grades and I thought this is where I'm supposed to be. And so um, my second year, my sophomore year at Baylor, I got my first job as a youth min- uh, as a music minister. So a um, friend of a friend calls me and says, hey, we need a music minister. Grace Baptist Church, China Spring, 20 people max the first Sunday I was there. And they said, uh, come, come lead. And so I went and tried out and they said, okay, you're good enough. You can stay. And a couple of months later, they're like, hey, we need a youth minister. I was 19 years old at the time. And I said, okay, I'll be a youth minister. Had no clue what it meant to be a youth minister. And, you know, some of my... my people I'm trying to lead are 18. And, and so I said, sure, I'll do that. Now, my pastor there was an excellent pastor. He was, he was only about five or six years older than me. And ironically, he had been the youth minister at Janie's church right before he came to this pastorate. He did not introduce us, but he did at some point vouch for me. I don't know why, because I was, anyway. Um, he poured value into me and he, he should have fired me at least three times three times during my next three and a half years that I was youth and music minister of Grace Baptist Church. One of them, since I was not very uh, knowledgeable in how to be a youth minister, my youth group growing up had 80 to 100 kids. We took 100 kids on a, on a youth choir trip um, my senior year, but we only had a full-time youth minister my senior year in high school. I don't know why. They just threw whoever over there, and it was, it was a terrible youth group, so I didn't know what to do. So I got all the teenagers together, and I said, hey, let's have a, let's have a night where we go to somebody's house. And they said, hey, let's do a Friday night. Let's do a movie night. This was back when you could rent the VCRs that looked like a suitcase, you know, and you would open it up. And, and so we rented a VCR and we rented a movie. And I said, hey, let's vote on what movie you want to watch. And, and they said, let's watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I go, okay. And so we did. And even worse, the, the house where we were being hosted, the big old fireman was, was the dad. And I'm telling you, he looked like Herman Munster. He was that tall and lanky and kind of scary. He goes, hey, Doug, wouldn't it be funny if after the movie, y'all start playing a game and I'll go over in the woods with a chainsaw and a mask and I'll come running out? I said, that'd be a great idea. 
And so we did. We go and we start playing soccer. And, and I kick the ball at, at the appointed time. I kick the ball over into the woods where big Herman Munster with a mask is on. He fires, and he had a 20-inch chainsaw. He fires that sucker up. Comes running out. Kids scattered all over China Spring, Texas. It was awesome until the next morning I get a phone call from my pastor. Did you show Texas Chainsaw Massacre last night? Yeah. Do you think that was a good idea? Not anymore. <laughs> he should have fired, honestly, he should have fired me because I was an idiot. Some reason, he let me preach not long after that. He, hey, you want to preach? Texas Chainsaw Massacre, idiot. And the first time I preached, uh, it was very intimidating. But some of my friends from Baylor came, and, and, and I still remember this one deacon's wife. They came up to me afterwards, and they said, dude, you're going to be a pastor someday. You're going to preach for a living someday. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan. Because I had told the Lord something like, I said something like, Lord, I'll sing for you, but I am never going to preach. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to make you do something you wouldn't like to do. That's not what I'm saying. What God has done in my life is there's nothing I would rather do then open up God's word, study it, and then prepare it for you in a way that you can digest it. I get value in my life when you are fed the word of God. There's nothing I would rather do today. So God changed my heart as I began to follow him. Now, in, in a rather odd twist, um, that day, uh, well, that little church, there was a lady very wealthy lady who decided she was going to be my personal thorn in the flesh, not to my face. She was going to run around and gossip behind my back and she was going to question everything I did. And because she was wealthy, she would start, she would find out I had something on the calendar and she would, she would uh, have a competing activity and hers would be better because she had money. You know, we were a little church. We didn't have money. And so she would do all of these things to try to make my life miserable. And, and partially because I said, if that's how church work is going to be, I'm not going to be in church work. I left. I got out of ministry for over a year. Now, it wasn't all her fault. The biggest part was I was, a, I was very immature as a Christian, and I needed to grow. But in a rather odd twist, after I'd left that church, her husband gave up his $300,000 a year job. Now, this was, when, this was in 1986 when he was making three hundred grand. He gave up his $300,000 a year job, and he said, I feel God's calling me to pastor. And I just grinned. And I was told she was very, very upset and said to him, God may have called you to the ministry. He didn't call me to the ministry. And then I went, ooh. I said, and I said, Lord, it was really, really difficult to have her in the church where I was ministering. I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to have her in your house as your wife. And I prayed for the man. I don't know if he stayed in ministry or not. I don't know if they stayed together. I went to Dallas and I became a computer operator for power computing because that's where ministers of God are supposed to go. During that 11 months, I lived near my brother, and he, he began, his ministry began to speak to my soul, and I began to heal. 11 months after I got there, um, I got a phone call from one of my brother's friends, and they said, hey, we need a full-time youth minister, and we, we would like for you to come try out for that. And, and here's another irony. My boss at Power Computing was a non-Christian, and when I told her that I'd been called by this church, she said, you need to get out of here. You need to go do that. You're not, this job isn't for you. That job's for you, non-Christian. 
So I went down and I went for my tryout weekend. That's what you do in the Baptist. It's called coming in view of a call. It just means tryout weekend. And so I get to the hotel the very first night. The pastor comes into my hotel room and he goes, hey, how do you feel about serving on staff with a divorced pastor? My wife just served me divorce papers. And I went, oh. I didn't know what to say. I, I went ahead and went. And, and eventually that pastor was, was forced to resign, not because he was divorced, but because he did some things behind the scenes and he was deceptive before he got remarried, and so they forced him out. And, and so I, I learned all kinds of things, <laughs> good things and bad things during that church split because it actually split the church. We went from 400 one Sunday to the next Sunday, 200. It was, it was awesome. Um, and, and the most spiritual people that, that had poured value in me left the church. And eventually God made it possible for me to go to seminary and, and eventually to come down here and eventually to start this church. Now, here's the thing. When we started this church 17 years ago, um, we had been praying like crazy. Should we, should we go to an existing church or should we start this church? We had no money, no following, nothing. And, and we finally just said, we got to start this church. In fact, another pastor in town said, Palestine needs the type of church that you want to build. You got to start it. After we started the church, both of my brothers said, we felt like for months that God was calling you to start a church, not go to his, an existing church. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that before? I agonized in prayer. Now, I share all of that with you because I had people cheering me on. It's the reason I'm here today. It's the reason new life exists. And we're going to spend three, four weeks cheering on the next generation. But before we do that, I want to have a little fun at the expense of millennials. Watch this video. Ding, 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 ding. There he sits inside your local coffee shop. Sporting a main bun and facial hair Somehow he believes although he has no job That by his thirties he will be a millionaire M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L Gotta love millennials M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L Gotta love millennials Lots of selfies on her Instagram With the quote that's inspirational Hopes to change the world while wearing yoga Pants armed with her dreams and knowledge of essential oils
Let me give you the next generation's greatest temptations. Number one is to feel entitled. He sang about it, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it. But, but when I grew up, you actually had to win something to get a trophy. Now everybody gets one whether you win or not. So this generation has been built in with this entitlement mindset. You'll see a 12-year-old running around today, and they say, how can I be effective as a kid if I don't have the latest smartphone? Get it for me now. And we have parents who do. If a kid wants it, they'll try to get it for them. Um, now we have people who are 25 years old, grew up with that mindset, who think they deserve to have the same standard of living that their parents have at 55. And how do you get the same standard of living at 25 that your parents have at 55? You borrow. You go into debt. Who cares? Because it's all about me. You got to be real careful with that. Most next-gen folks don't understand two words. First word they don't understand is um, contentment. Go ahead and put that up there. Um, they're satisfied with, one ha with what one is or has, not wanting more or anything else, ease of mind. See, they don't understand that you can say to God, God, I'm going to look at what I do have and what I, not what I don't have, and I'm going to trust you. Even if I don't like it, I'm going to trust you. That's contentment, ease of mind. See, they don't understand entitlement, and entitlement says this, God and everybody else in my life owes me, and if I don't get what I want, I'm going to blame you, God. I'm going to get mad at you. God, you're going to get no credit when stuff goes right in my life, but I'm going to give you all the blame when stuff goes wrong. That's a sense of entitlement, and that's a danger for next-gen folks. Second, next-gen temptation is to define truth as you see fit. In our schools, in our movies, in our music, online, this generation has been taught there is no such thing as absolute truth. And if you say that, then you're making an absolute statement, and that defies logic, but you can't, you can't be logical. If next-gen folks believe in some kind of God, it's a God who looks, acts, sounds, does exactly what they do. They make a God in their own image because their life's all about them. This entire generation, there's an entire generation that says, I can be a Christian and live any way I want, and it's none of your business. No, you can't. Here, look what Moses what they said about Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure, passing pleasures of sin. The Bible says that sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, no one would do it, but it's only fun for a time because it leads to death and destruction. It's like when you have a cold, you got this head cold, and you need to sneeze. Man, when you finally sneeze, it feels good, but then you got all the snot. I don't know if you ever had that happen. That's what sin does. Man, it feels good for about that long, and then it leads to death and destruction. The, the, the danger of this generation is there's no such thing as, as absolute truth. It's just truth for me, your truth for you, and, and we'll just tolerate one another. If you live like that, you're calling Jesus Christ a liar. Because here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says truth is not some concept. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. You have a higher power. His name is Jesus Christ. You will not, this is a celebrate recovery, you will not get well from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups until you give all of your life, power, and control over to Jesus Christ, your higher power. Third temptation is to postpone adulthood. 
Uh, Tim Elmore has a book called The IY Generation. This is, I just wanted you to see this book. And he asked the next generation, um, when do you become an adult? And I want to show you what they didn't say. Here's what they didn't say. I'm, when I'm old enough to drive, that's not when I become an adult, not when I graduate high school, not when I'm old enough to vote. Next one. Next, not when I, when I can legally buy beer, not when I graduate college, not when I get my first job, not when I get married. That's not what they said. The number one answer they gave, when do you become an adult, is when I have my first child. I know people who've had children at 12. Does that make them an adult? I had my first child at 30 is when Caleb was born. Is that when I became an adult? Because I'm going to tell you, I was living like an adult long before I had my first child, long before I got married. I was living as a responsible adult. The enemy wants to say, real life starts later. When? I don't know. Maybe when you have a kid. Maybe when you're 50. That's a lie from hell. Can I let you on a little secret? Real life starts today. Whether you're 13, 31, 81, real life starts today. No matter your age, no matter your past, real life starts right now. Now, let me tell you the greatest strength of the next generation and I've heard this over and over. They are cause-driven. They are mission-minded. All of these conferences that Janie and I go to, that's where we get fed spiritually. We come back on a spiritual high. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this said. This may be the most cause-driven, mission-minded generation in the history of the planet. You give them a cause, they will go and die for that cause. <clears throat> and that's what they're signing up for. There are all kinds of things. There's, you can go drill wells, water wells in, in third world countries, and you can sign up to do that. You can get on mercy ships, and you can go around to third world countries, and you can serve where you do surgery for people who are not able to, to uh, afford surgery. Um, you can buy a pair of shoes from one company, and they'll donate a pair of shoes to, to a third world country. There are just all kinds of stuff that, that, that happened now that wasn't available when I was growing up. When I was a teenager in my youth group, the only thing we ever did was went on a choir tour. We, we drove all around the South, and we went on a choir tour. We sang cheesy Christian music, and we had cheesy um, choreography, and we thought that was going to change the world. When, when I was youth minister, the youth camp where I met Janie, all right, I'm in college. I'm a sophomore in college. She's a sophomore in high school, and I met her. We didn't date, but, but that's when I went, hey, and she went, hey. Anyway, um, I don't know why, because. So the, the day that, that we were supposed to start youth camp, the guy who was coming to be the worship leader got sick and couldn't come. And so they huddle together. This is my first time at this youth camp. And they say, hey, Doug's a church music major. He can lead worship for thousands of students. Back then, we didn't have Christian music. All right, so the only, one of the only choruses, that's, we did choruses back then. One of the only choruses I knew was, um, give, me, give, me, uh, give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. Keep it burning till the light of day. Sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Hey, sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna to the King. I sang that. That's not bad enough. I also added this verse. I don't know why Janie married me after I sang it publicly. Give me hot sauce in my tacos. Let me witness in Morocco. Give me hot sauce in my tacos. I pray. I'm not kidding. That was Christian music back then. Love is blind and deaf and all those other things because she married me anyway after that. There are all kinds of organizations today that are signing up kids for anywhere from a, from nine, from, from a week to nine months. Uh, Hannah's best friend has, has, is, is in Costa Rica right now. She spent 
um, several months in Malaysia and China, and now she's in Costa Rica. Nine months, she paid thousands of dollars to go be on a mission trip for nine months. What other generation knew a friend of a friend of a friend whose brother had cancer, and so the friend of a friend of a friend shaves their head, puts it on Facebook to raise five bucks to help pay for that that kid's cancer. That's this generation. There's never been a generation who's cause-driven, mission-minded like they are. They can change the world because they can. The enemy is desperately trying to talk them out of doing today what God wants them to do. And we have to we have to be on their side. Let me tell you what the Bible says, what God says about you. First Timothy 4.12, don't want, let anyone think less of you because you're young. Don't let anyone talk you out of what God wants you to do today simply because you're age. You, you are called to the greatest cause in history, and that's to build the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what you're supposed to do. Be an example to all believers in what they say, in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Now, in baseball, I hope more of you know about baseball than the first service. This took a while. In baseball, not the guy who's batting, but the guy who's next, they call him on deck. Yes. Y'all are so much more sports-minded. It worked better here. The enemy says you're on deck. You're not ready to bat yet. But I want you to say this. I am not on deck. Say it. Now say, I am up to bat. Here's the deal. There's two places where you are up to bat right now. You should be up to bat in this church because God brought you to this church to serve, not to sit. You will not find sitters, spectators in the scripture who do anything for the kingdom of God that lasts. You're up to bat. There's something you should be doing. Second place is outside these walls. There are people outside these walls who will never come inside these walls until they see a genuine Christian love them. We're not about behavior modification. Do you know that? That's the Holy Spirit's job is to change people. I can't can't shame you into anything. I can try to lead you. I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. You can say that to other believers, but you can't say that to non-believers until you earn their trust and they say, okay, you magnified the Lord today. Do Do you know unbelievers cannot worship, but they can observe worship? And some of the best impact for the kingdom of God that's ever happened in this church is when a non-believer sits out there and they see you magnify the name of the risen Christ. And I've had people say, what was that? I felt something I've never felt in my life. And I got to tell them about the risen Savior. When you magnify God with your life, non-Christians notice. Whether you're 13, 31, 81, this church needs you. We, uh, before Rachel went off to college, we figured out that she started singing in the band when she was in eighth grade. She w- spent somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 hours volunteering in this church to help lead you in worship. Started when she was eighth grade, scared to death, knees knocking, eyes wide when she was up here on the stage, but she felt God called her to do it. And someone else, it wasn't me, someone else asked her to be in the band. We started New Life 17 years ago, and Keith Lively, our electric guitar player, has been playing in the band for 16 of those years. He's also our IT guy. He's the one that made it possible for us to stream our Facebook, uh, on Facebook, our services, and, and he does all of the computer stuff. He's been investing his life for 16 years. Why would someone do that? Because the kingdom of God will last. Everything else you're investing in right now, other than maybe family relationships or or telling someone about, about Christ, is temporary. 
You spend so much of your time and energy on temporary things. And God says, wake up. I believe you can make a difference. But it's only if you get rid of certain things and you replace them with the most important things. God planted you at this time in history to make a difference. How do I know? Well, he chose you to do this. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This scripture was written not to Jews. This was written to Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Guess what? This scripture was written to you. If you're a Christ follower, God chose you before you ever chose him. You are a priest. You may not do what I do for a living, but you are a priest. You have every right to go before your heavenly father just as much as I do and in fact when you do when you magnify God more than when I magnify God people outside these walls pay attention now some of you are saying well I've messed up I had sex before marriage I'm divorced I'm whatever okay so you sinned yeah we're a sinner welcome to the human race confess it to God let the Holy Spirit take the blood of Christ and cleanse you from all sin and get busy serving become who God created you to be he believes in you, I believe in you. Now, everybody who's not in their 20s or 30s, everybody who did not stand up earlier, God has one message for you today, and here it is. If you're not investing in the younger generation, you are self-centered and not Christ-centered. It is time for this church to invest in the next generation, and it's what we're gonna do. Doesn't mean that, that you, know, you have to have this formal training. Maybe you just go to, if Paul and Timothy were alive today, they would be at cream and coffee. Start to say Starbucks, we don't have that. They'd be at cream and coffee. They'd be texting one another, answering questions, asking questions, pouring value into one another. It just means you see somebody who's just a little bit farther behind you and say, hey, I, see, I believe in you and I want to pour value into you. Some of you are going to say, I don't have time. <laughs> it's because your priorities are wrong. You have enough time every day to do the will of God. If you're not accomplishing the will of God, it's because you've got things in your life that are not God's will for you, and it's time to get them out. Would you bow your heads? Father, I pray that, that we would take seriously this idea that we have to invest in the next generation. Raise up a group of people who will change history. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.